No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Katherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer, and this is No Gray Zone Podcast. Intimate partner violence, those types of cases carry their own unique challenges when it comes to investigations, the safety of the responding officers, and there is no one better able to explain these challenges and unique investigative tools than someone who has been working these cases for years. We are really excited and pleased to introduce Captain Timothy Fridman of the Calvert County Sheriff's Department in order to share a little bit of his insight. Tim's been in law enforcement for over two decades. Uh, He's worked all kinds of cases, and for the last 15 years, his main emphasis has been as a detective and supervisor of the Criminal Investigations Bureau. Tim's been responsible for investigations of numerous child abuse and domestic violence cases and homicides. He's also a certified polygrapher, and he often works with the criminal justice programs at the local area schools where he is, as well as teaching at the colleges. And when he's not working as a baseball coach for the school system, you can also find him on the ID channel where he's been featured before. I had the pleasure of working with Tim for a number of years, and we are really honored that he could join us today. Glad to be here. Well, welcome. And as Catherine mentioned, one of your roles is the supervisor of the Criminal Investigations Division. Um, In that capacity, you're responsible for training and assisting new detectives when they come on the job. And so what do you think is the most important part of preparing new detectives for specifically intimate partner violence cases? Well, you know, it's a a multi-prong training that we do. One, I think the biggest the biggest thing is to, to pay attention to uh, the detail of the statements of the victims of domestic violence as well as the the suspects because later on, obviously, you know, with with domestic violence cases, a lot of times the the victim recants. So the detail that goes into getting the first statement and the observations are really the the biggest thing. Looking at the scene, looking at the injuries on the victim, and then listening to what the victim has to say and and properly recording what the victim has to say at that time. Because a couple months down the road, that's going to change, you know, because most most victims take, you know, average of seven times before they, they take any actions against their abuser or leave their abuser. So it's really important, especially in our aspect, is to get that evidence early on. And then also, I'd say, to recontact the victim two or three days later as well. And, and you know, it's hard for, for a patrol officer, but for a detective, you know, we make it a habit of, of contacting that victim again two, three days later to look at any new evidence that develops, you know, any new bruising, any new things that might evidence 
statements that, that come forward. You know, a lot of times our victims are, are intoxicated or, or, or have some type of, uh, you know, they might be under medical trauma, they might be impaired by, by medications. So two to three days later, you know, a lot of times they recall certain things and once they calm down and we get the chance to look at injuries in a different way. Yeah. And I think, and you kind of touched on it in your last answer, but one of the most difficult challenges that I think law enforcement have, I've seen, and I think Catherine would say the same thing, is taking the time to determine, especially in a chaotic scene when you're first on um, on scene, of who the initial or primary aggressor is, as opposed to just arresting parties. Like you said, there are people could be in both parties could be intoxicated. If there's a strangulation, we know that the the victim may be more agitated because she's just experienced he or she has been under a lot of stress. But why is it so important for the officers to take the time? to um, determine whether or not they can make a determination about a primary aggressor. Because a lot of times, and, and I'll give you an example, there was one particular case where the abuser, which was a male, was strangling the female and pushed her up against a cabinet and was strangling her. And she grabbed a vase that was near and hit him in the head. So when a police officer gets there, all obviously all they see is him bleeding from the head, broken vase, and immediately, you know, an officer without doing any any research or, or talking to the victim, the suspect, and or witnesses. And I, I always like to speak to the children because they're the truthful individuals in the house, even if they don't observe the altercation in her bedroom, they hear everything. So in that particular case, he was strangling her and she hit him in, with a vase. Now, on face value, of course, he said, that, you know, she just got agitated, hit him with the vase in, in the head. And, you know, you take that on face value, say, okay, lock her up. She's primary aggressor, but that's not true. You know, by speaking with the children and then and, and looking at her injuries around and listen to her story, as well as looking at the, the observations, chairs moved in the kitchen, the, the cabinet, the, the top of the, um, the Hoosier was, was shifted, which led to credibility that she was being strangled as well as the marks on her neck. And that she was acting in a self-defense capacity when she hit him in the, in the head with the, with the vase. So ultimately, if you, you know, you just showed up and looked face value, you'd say, okay, well, she's the primary aggressor and she had been drinking and you'd say, okay, she's, she's getting arrested. But further research, you know, when you look at everything, you know, you realize that he's the primary aggressor, although he had the more severe injury at that point, physically looking, you know, he was the primary aggressor. What we don't like to have in law enforcement is to charge both parties, because that does no one any good. It's just a wash. So we really do our best. That's one of the things that, that we try to train our officers is determining the primary aggressor. It takes time, but eventually you can get to somewhat, at least part truthful story if you really look at the evidence and, and discuss with you know the victim and the suspect, as well as you know the children are always the best, the best tool we have for, for truth. You know, it lies in the middle, usually with the child. And that's kind of how we, we look at it. We try our best to determine who the primary aggressor is. And I think that's really important for the reasons you stated earlier, right? On average, it's seven times before the victim leaves their abuser. And if they have called for help and they end up getting arrested because the investigation isn't thoroughly done, both parties are arrested, the likelihood of the victim of intimate partner violence calling the police for help again is going to be slim to none. And I think the last thing anybody wants is to end up with a homicide because of the chilling effect for when they called the police before and were arrested. Exactly. 
One of the things, though, that you do in addition to working with and training new detectives is you sit or have sat on numerous multidisciplinary teams throughout your career to include the child abuse multidisciplinary team, the drug court. For this conversation, more importantly, with the domestic fatality review team, as well as uh, you have a domestic review team and a red flag group that you chair. Can you explain a little bit about the purpose of the domestic fatality review team? Well, the fatality review team, what we do is we review any fatality that has domestic overtones to it. And to really dissect the case, bring in witnesses, victims, you know, if, if, if the children are victims, we bring them in to speak. If we bring in all the statements, all the evidence, any counseling individuals, we get them to sign waivers. We bring them all into a room and we discuss the case and we pick it apart piece by piece. And what usually comes from that is that the most successful ones have been, what can we do to change, say, as easy as what court paperwork says or what, you know, we, we always come up with recommendations on you know, if we review a, a homicide or a near homicide, I mean, obviously, we just look at how we can better our system, how we can better address and where maybe we can improve on. And that's the whole purpose of the fatality review is to see where we can we can improve on. And, and I give you an example. We actually changed one of the forms for the District Court of Maryland. We made a suggestion. We submitted it. And, and it had to do with the lethality part and, and some kind of about the weapons and just added a question on there. We submitted it and actually got approved. And that came from, has there, the question was, has there any been any prior protective orders? Have you ever applied for protective orders? Because we've come across in this one particular case we reviewed at the domestic fatality was the victim had applied for protective orders in a sistering county, but not Calvert County. So when we reviewed this case, we had no knowledge that there was outstanding protective orders that or expired protecting protective orders for a sister county. And there is no, once they're purged, they're purged. So that was a question we added to one of our forms was when they came to get a protective order, have you applied for a protective order in the past? And if so, what county? So that way we could, we could access that information and use it to help safety plan. So we added that, that came out of a fatality review because unfortunately a, a victim passed away, but we had no idea that the, the victim was living in our county. They had come to us for a protective order and we had no idea that they had had protective orders. And like I said, sistering counties or different states to help ba- better assess this person and get them the, the things that they needed to make them safe. So that was like, that was just one, one thing that came from that. So when we sit down and look at the fatality reviews, we just really dissect the case, see how we can improve to see if there's any services that that can be added to see if uh, we can tweak anything to hopefully prevent a homicide in the future. When you mentioned the counselors and the partners, what kinds of organizations sit on uh, the domestic fatality review team? We have the health department is crisis intervention provides their counseling as well as a family advocacy center that helps with us. It can be, it can be a, just a, a plethora of, of, of individuals that at any given time come in based on the case by case basis. It can also be, uh, we've in the past called school counselors and had them sign uh, waivers and come sit on the meetings and, and discuss what maybe the children have seen and how, you know, especially if it, if it comes through a school system, if it gets started, 
you know, in that situation. We've had them. So it can be a plethora of anybody who's really involved in the case. And so um, I know you talked a little bit about the Domestic Violence Fatality Review Committee and the purpose of that, but the Domestic uh, Review MDT for red flag cases, can you talk about kind of what organizations sit on the team and why it's so important? We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about how multidiscipline teams are kind of key to uh, investigating and properly responding to cases. So can you talk a little bit about that? What the primary individuals involved there is a member of crisis intervention from the health department, law enforcement, and the state's attorney's office. Those are the, the three. But also we bring in the, the Calvert Control Center, which is our 911 operators, as well as, again, school counselors, anybody, the ministry, anybody of, of a faith-based origin that has a concern about a a group of individuals. Now, what we do, the primary three, is we look at individuals involved in domestic violence cases and determine if they need to be on the red flag list, meaning does it rise to where we have concern? And that concern, again, can come from from any of the, the entities or relayed through any of our team members. And then what we do is we put their their, their names, addresses. We, we also notify the control center. And they're a big part of it because a lot of times they get 911 hangups. They hear things that they, they go on in the background that so they can they can make recommendations to the red flag list as well. And, and basically it's a documentation of when the name or address is ran, the control center notifies the officer that there's a, a higher standard of risk for these individuals that are involved in this situation. So if we go to a house and, you know, there's a domestic violence situation, 911 hears a lot of things in the background, the officer gets there, you know, no, no arrest is made, but the control center says, hey, we heard a lot of things in the background that are very disturbing. And we look at the history of these individuals, they'll be added to the red flag list. So not only the residents, but if we get called for a moving vehicle where a domestic is occurring in a moving vehicle, we stop and these two are there, that heightens the officer into really assessing that that situation a lot deeper than just a random you know caller saying there's an argument in a vehicle going down the road. So same thing happens at Walmart. A lot of times we get individuals Walmart or or, or some type of establishment. We get there and and you know male female or whoever are involved in an argument. We run their names. We come to find out that they're on the high risk list, the red flag list. Therefore, we look at it a little bit deeper. And, and it's just not a verbal argument. It might be something more than that. That's kind of what the, the entities involved in the red flag list and, and what it really does for us. Also for residents, it, it also notifies the officer that they're going into a, a high risk situation and that, you know, where we always do our best to separate individuals. Again, this is where children come into play, where we would just go and if it was a 911 hangup, it might just not be a 911 hangup if it comes back on the red flag list, it could have been a domestic situation that they just hung up 911 and we would look deeper into that. The red flag list, and I know the group you've put together, really does work hard on saving lives and preventing intimate partner homicides. But unfortunately, no matter how much training, services, assistance is provided in the community, we know we'll always have domestic violence homicides. And the hope, as you explained with the Domestic Violence Fatality Review, is that with each homicide, we'll learn something more and hopefully prevent a future one. But, you know, it's good for us and for the listeners to learn from these homicides. So if we can just take a little bit of time to go through one of the domestic violence homicides that pretty much ticked all those red flags, the Graham Buckmaster case that you worked, if we could kind of just review that. Well, that was definitely checked all the boxes for all the 
all the, the problems that, that, that arise from domestic violence situations. It was Graham Buckmaster and Lisa Moore. Both had been dating for, for probably six plus years. They lived together. And um, Lisa, it was a volatile relationship. Graham was a, was a raging alcoholic. There was some drug use, a, a big age difference in their relationship. Uh, what happened in this particular instance that they, uh, Lisa had got a protective order against Graham and Graham had moved out. Problem was Graham moved right next door to his mother's house that shares the property and ultimately lived in a shed slash storage building that was still on his mother's property, but a clear view of the residence where Lisa lived. Although from protective order standards, you know, it met the requirements. It was on a different curtilage. It was, you know, it was, it was fine, but, but Graham could see Lisa's every move when she came, you know, from the house, when she left from the house, his mother, Graham's mother actually owned the residence, started eviction process against Lisa. She was in the process of moving out. So, um, what had happened to, to, to spark this, you have the protective order that's in place. Graham violated the protective order numerous times by calling her, things like that. She did report to the sheriff's office a violation. And unfortunately it was just a, I believe it was a phone contact, which we did an application, but unfortunately it was a criminal summons issued. What happened is on New Year's Eve, Lisa had moved on and started dating another individual and the other individual would come to visit Lisa at her house, which is Graham's house, which he lived in the storage shed right next door. So he could see everything that was going on and noticed that there was a strange truck in the driveway. He told her not to bring him back to the house. And on this particular night, which was New Year's Eve, they came to the house to get ready for New Year's Eve. Graham witnessed this and, um, Graham came over to talk to Lisa because this relationship, it's like any domestic violence relationship. It was very volatile and it went on for years and years. And in Graham's eyes, he was just going to kiss, make up, and it was going to, they're going to be back together just like they have probably the 10 plus times that we know about before this. So on this particular night, Graham comes over, he walks through the backyard, he comes in a sliding glass door in the basement. Lisa's getting ready downstairs in the basement to go out for New Year's with her new boyfriend, per se, who's upstairs. She has a conversation with Graham. The new boyfriend upstairs hears the conversation. He comes to the top steps. He asks Lisa if she's okay. She says, yup, Graham's here, but he's leaving. Graham leaves out the back sliding glass door. Her new boyfriend comes down, puts the um, attempts to secure the door and puts a golf club actually in the door in the basement Graham goes back over. They watch him go back over to his shed. And there's a discussion between Lisa and her new boyfriend about calling the police. But they left uh, the cell phone in the vehicle, which he had parked a little bit of a distance from the house because he knew it would it would stir up Graham if the truck was seen in the driveway. So he said, I'll walk down to the truck, get the phone so we can call 911. And he goes down to the truck while he's walking the distance to get to the truck. He gets the phone as he's coming back up. He hears glass break. He sees, uh, he comes up. He basically secretes himself behind a, a, a large tree and watches. And he hears a gunshot. Graham comes out the front door. He gets into his pickup trucks and in, in, in pickup truck, which is right next door and flees. He goes in and he finds um, Lisa shot in the face slash head laying on the, the basement floor.
at the same time he's calling 911. You kind of touched on it a little bit that it, this is a red flag case and that there are prior instances. I think you said approximately 10 incidences. Are those the ones that were reported to the sheriff's office? Yes. And this relationship was extremely, I guess, toxic because there were so many ties to keep Lisa in the relationship. She dated Graham for a long time. Graham's family owned a crab slash seafood restaurant where she worked. All the friends that they had were all intertwined together. So what was Lisa's friends were Graham's friends and vice versa, like most relationships. At one point, our narcotics officers were doing surveillance on another establishment where Lisa worked during the winter and saw Graham basically beating her to a, to a pulp outside and actually had to break their cover as narcotics officers and intervene in the situation where Graham was just beating Lisa Merce. There was instances where, where Graham would pour bleach on her, would do just, just horrific things to her, grab her by her hair and drag her, you know, out of places, you know, plenty of witnesses around that, that wouldn't intervene because the mentality was, oh, that's just Lisa and Graham. That's just them in another fight. That's just the way it is for them. So yeah, there was, there was numerous, numerous interactions with law enforcement, as well as things that, that just got reported through, through friends. Catherine and I talk a lot about how strangulation is uh, one of the key indicators for, for domestic violence homicide. I think our favorite statistic, well, I don't want to say favorite because it's a terrifying statistic, is that once you've been strangled and non-fatal strangulation, you're 750 times more likely to end up a domestic violence homicide victim. Did Lisa ever report or did you ever hear through her friends that Graham had strangled her before? Oh yeah. I mean, it was, it was reported several times. He used to, he was a very tall individual and she was a very petite female and he would oftentimes grab her in a chokehold around the neck, his, with his fingers and, and, and use that as a, as the way he would maneuver her around and squeeze her neck. He, he was a, a veteran. He, he, he knew how to use his hands. He knew how to fight. He knew where to grab an individual. It was reported at one point that he put her to sleep by choking her at one point from behind. So yeah, he, he did. He would often, that was the, the target area for him would be to, to grab her around the neck. And I know a lot of our listeners who are probably not in law enforcement or prosecutors are thinking, wait, if he has beaten her up 10 times and caused her to go unconscious, why wasn't Graham in jail? you know, why was he out to be able to do this type of thing? And I know you touched on it a little bit about recantation and victims, you know, not wanting to go forward. So can you talk a little bit about how that played out in this specific case? And again, the, the average, and, you know, depending on what study you look at is, is seven plus times before you do anything. I mean, in this case, she, she probably had well over seven plus times, but she at this point made the, the, the choice to leave. And this was probably the, one of the most volatile times because she was prior to this she would always recant you know they would be the honeymoon phase Graham would be great you know everything would be fine and it would happen again she would get a protective order she would drop the protective order and you know and, and again seven times you know this, this case was probably a little bit more she probably until she she decided but she had packed her things she was in the process of moving. Some things had been moved out of the house. She had things in boxes. She had moved on. She had gotten a new boyfriend. So she saw what the difference was between, you know, a volatile relationship and this this individual. So she was she was all set to move. And like I said, they, she had boxes packed. Some boxes had been moved. So she had made a determination that, that this was it, which 
I think led to the homicide because Graham realized this wasn't just we're going to honeymoon phase where I can kiss and make up and move on. The boyfriend really was the, the catalyst for this, this horrific crime. So this was truly the, you know, the saying, if I can't have you, no one can. And because Lisa was actually truly leaving this time and sticking with the protective order, it was different than all the other times. You know, one of the things that we've talked about is that the most dangerous time in an intimate partner relationship is that time right when the victim actually leaves. I know you had mentioned that Lisa had started packing up boxes, but she was still living in the same house. And as you said, he sounds like Graham had like the stalking behavior of watching every move she made. Was there ever talk of Lisa going to a shelter or finding another residence? Did she have family in the area or anywhere else in the state she could have gone to? I mean, she was offered the, the shelter numerous times. Her family, her her daughter was really her only family that she had around here, but she had made arrangements. She had a place to stay. She was, like I said, in the process of moving out. And unfortunately, this was the all the, the stars aligned in this particular instance because it was New Year's Eve, new boyfriend, Graham living just feet from the house. You know, there was other I guess factors you would say if, if if one of their friends might have just said something or called earlier in the day because Graham did and, and Catherine you mentioned stalking Graham had followed them around from place to place they actually went and bought New Year's Eve tickets at a local bar and Graham came into the local bar while they were in there buying their tickets and he made comments to to the bartender about Lisa to where Lisa had to be escorted out the back door of the establishment and then that's when her and her new boyfriend went home to get ready. Graham had been drinking all day in another local establishment, and he made a comment to to one of the bartenders that, you know, this was going to be the last day, this was going to change life, that type of thing. And if, if any of them individuals would have called, especially when he was in clear violation of the order by going to the local establishment, seeing Lisa where she had to be escorted out the back door by employees, if they would have called, he would have probably been incarcerated. Maybe this wouldn't have happened. But again, the mentality of their friends was, this is just Lisa and Graham. It'll all work out. They'll be back together. This is what they always do. Yeah. As law enforcement and prosecutors, I think we always look back on cases when you have one, you keep seeing them over and over again, and then you get that homicide that you wonder what we could have done differently that that would have changed whether or not we could have prevented it. Was the red ball list in effect at the time of um, Lisa's murder? No, actually, that's what what was one of the catalysts for us to start the red flag list is this was a really probably a textbook, unfortunately a textbook domestic violence homicide. It, it checks so many boxes, as Catherine said, that that was one of the good things that came out of the domestic fatality review team was to establish this checklist to establish. And going back to what we, we discussed earlier with the fatality review is that's the whole idea of it is to, to see how we can improve our system to hopefully prevent something like this from occurring in the future. And, and you can't measure prevention, but if we can do something to improve, to, to hopefully hinder one of these horrific crimes, that's, that's, that's what it's for. You know, it checked all the boxes. Graham had been saying at the local establishment, tonight's going to change lives. It didn't seem like he was hiding his behavior at all. So did he admit to the homicide right away? Did he plead guilty? Or did he offer some kind of defense or excuse? Well, Graham, when he fled, he was supposed to, we had contact with him right when he, 
he pulled out of the driveway not too too long afterwards. We had cell, cell phone contact with him, and he said he was going to turn himself in, which turned into a three-day chase across the, the Cumberland Gap in the Kentucky and Tennessee, and eventually they apprehended him in Harlan, Kentucky. A park ranger had got him. When it finally, uh, he, he made no admissions. He, he immediately had an attorney. When trial came, his claim was that he acted in self-defense, that when he came back in he, to the residence, he broke in the front door. He wanted to only talk to Lisa. And when he went downstairs, that Lisa had the shotgun and pointed it at him. They wrestled over the shotgun, and then he blacked out and didn't know what happened to where it went off. What the evidence pointed to was, and, and I'm dating myself, is I, we actually had Polaroids. And, and one of the big things was, was, was I would always go around and Polaroid the scene because that's what we used. And the gun was taken from a back room that was in the residence. Now, you know, with protective orders and, and, and things, especially final protective orders, you know, a lot of times guns are surrendered. You have to turn them over. And, and Graham had plenty of weapons. He had plenty. He's an avid hunter. He had, you know, he's a Vietnam vet. He knew, he knew how to use weapons. He, what we learned was he went and retrieved one of the weapons that was still in the house and that were his, which in today's world wouldn't have happened, probably seized, you know, seized those weapons. And he came back. There was actually, uh, I recall, there was CMT playing on the TV. It was a country music countdown. And Lisa was in doing her hair, had curlers in her hair. She had come out of the room and Graham had shot her point blank in the face with the shotgun. And then she dropped, dropped right there. The defense was, again, they wrestled. Understand that Graham was 6'4". She was five, 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 maybe even smaller than that. Um, the trajectory was not right um, for, for her having a weapon and, and shooting it, um, nor um, one of the biggest things was she was getting ready for New Year's Eve. She still had mascara in her hand on the ground as she died. So the argument that they wrestled over this gun and it was this, this wrestle thon and, and then the gun accidentally went off you know, really went out the door because we had the Polaroid that showed mascara. We actually videotaped it that showed our crime scene tech removing the mascara from her clenched hand. So that was, you know, a big piece of evidence about, you know, there was this vicious fight and the gun went off. You know, what female is going to hold on to mascara as she's fighting over a, a weapon? I remember that piece of evidence so well because Allure magazine actually cited to this case when it was going through the history of mascara and were cited that it was a key piece of evidence in the homicide trial of Graham Buckmaster. And I remember part of it is because of how Lisa was shot, it actually, you know, severed her spinal cord and the medical examiner said the body would have automatically clenched on whatever it was had in its grasp at the time, which was that mascara, which was definitive in showing there was no way she had hands on the weapon at all. It was crazy. And so what what was the outcome of of the trial? Uh, guilty. And I can't recall. Was it two life sentences? What I know we talked about the red flag list, but what do you think is the most important thing that you learned from this particular case that you took into your investigations of non-fatal domestic violence cases? One was really to to separate by by distance. I think that definitely we would have done more in today's world to get her separate from that resident. Either we would have put her somewhere or really tried to articulate the shelter 
you know, or, or had her stay with a friend to move her location away from, from that area. That was just a, it was just a, a bomb ready to go off. You know, you had like, again, you had Graham watching her just from a short distance, seeing everything that she does under his control in the house. So I think that that's one big thing that we would have done too. I think that now seizing of firearms, I think is huge for protective orders. You know, it's not a cure all for, for firearms, but he obtained that weapon because it was readily available. We would have seized that weapon in today's world during the final protective order, even even maybe earlier in the in the protective order violation, you know, in the protective order obtaining it. So I think that would have been huge because that, that firearm wouldn't have been there. You know, there's there's quite a few things that we learned from that, as well as coming across them, you know, again, they would have been on the red flag list. It would have been a heightened alert if they had contact with any of any of the county entities, it would have been a heightened alert on on dealing with with, with those two. Uh, you know, I, I think that the, the seizing of firearms, things that we do now are so important. And we do, don't know, like you said earlier, how many lives we saved because we can't, can't really, there's not a way to figure out how many homicides we've prevented by some of the changes that we've made over the years. But that is all the time we have today, Tim, and we can't thank you enough for joining us today to share your experiences and your knowledge. Is there anything you think that is important for our listeners to consider um, when they're thinking about intimate partner violence, or if they have a family or friend, or even if they are themselves experiencing it. To report anything that you see that that's a, a violence, a domestic violence flag, you know, if it if it's a control thing, you know, if, again, I go back to the witnesses, if they would have just called the police or called someone or said, this isn't, this isn't normal, you know, there, there's been so much education the last 15 plus years where people do call now more than more than ever. But I think that's the biggest thing is for people to realize if they see any type of, of red flags in someone's relationship, whether it's their child's, whether it's, you know, a, a friend, a, a coworker, that they need to say something. They need to, to, to point it out. They need to report it. Thank you, Tim, so much for everything you've done in the field of intimate partner violence, from training of detectives to working with our high school students on being able to readily recognize those controlling factors or red flags early on for teen dating violence and for going out into the community all the time to basically bring intimate partner violence out of that home so that people are willing to talk about it and willing to report it. Can't stress enough that intimate partner violence impacts every single part of our community and we need to make sure that we are all being neighbors to each other and reporting or making that call as you said who knows where lisa's life might be if that bartender had called law enforcement as opposed to escorting her out the back door but as always if you like what you hear please subscribe and you can find us on social media at no gray zone rrc on instagram or twitter and no gray zone on facebook there are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response to sexual harassment I'm just good at caring too much I'm just good at caring too much Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing I'm just good at caring too much